You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guests on today's episode of Talking Taiwan are Stephanie Davis and Patrick Springer, founders of the Black Lives Solidarity Global Initiative. I first learned about the group when I heard that there is going to be a Black Lives Matter Solidarity Global Initiative rally on June 13th at the 228 Peace Memorial Park in Taipei. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie and Patrick. Hi. Hey, thank you. Wonderful. So, um, and so I'm always curious when I have people on the podcast, um, how what brought them to Taiwan? So could you tell me a little bit about yourselves and what brought you to Taiwan? First of all, how long you've and how long you've been there? All right, uh, I'll go first. I guess because I've been here longest. Uh, so I'm Patrick. I've come. I came to Taiwan in 2011. Uh, my I guess my my trip to Taiwan was kind of a spur of the moment thing. Uh, I had a really good friend who my business partner right now. His name is Carl. Uh, he contacted me shortly after I graduated from college back in 2011, uh, during the middle of the recession back in America, and he asked me if I wanted a job. Uh, it was three o'clock in the morning when he called me, so I was a little bit woozy when he said it. Uh, but he offered me this job. He said, hey, if you could get all this paperwork done and this, 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 and that, uh, then I have a job for you. Uh, two weeks later, I was on an airplane, and I was in my first country ever. So the very first, the very first stamp in my passport uh, was my Taiwanese visa to live out in Taiwan. Uh, so that's how I came to be in Taiwan. Like I said, very spur of the moment. Uh, and to be an ESL teacher because there were no jobs available in America. Um, I thought that I was going to stay for one year and ended up staying out here uh, almost a decade. Yeah, wow. Okay, great. And for me, um, Stephanie, um, I I got here by way of kind of life and death, right? So I had some deaths in my immediate family, and it all occurred within a year and a half. And as I was processing through those emotions and, you know, learning how to adjust and live my new, new normal life, um, just the opportunity for teaching abroad just continued to come up. And I was thinking to myself, who do I know currently teaching abroad? And obviously my cousin. Um, and at that time, my cousin's school was looking for teachers. So I applied. I did not tell him about me applying. Um, because I did not want him to speak up for me. I didn't want him to feel obligated to do anything on my behalf. Um, and as time progressed, they decided to move forward and I was hired. And, and then he got the call from one of my bosses on the elementary side. And he was like, Stephanie, what is going on? How, what, how did this happen? And I was just like, it I didn't want to tell you because surprise. huge. Surprise. Yeah. I didn't want to tell him because it, I didn't want him to have to feel obligated to speak up for me. So I moved forward. I was actually in human resources as a human resource professional prior to moving here to become an ESL teacher. So, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Great. And um, can you tell me where you guys are from? Like where in the U.S. you're from? Sure. So for me, I'm a military kid. So I'm from a little bit of everywhere, but I moved to Taiwan from St. Louis as an STL transplant for 13 years. 
Oh, great. And Patrick? And with me, I was born uh, born in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, shout out to Pulaski County. Uh, and then I moved to St. Louis when I was super, super young. So I consider St. Louis, Missouri, my home. It's where I grew up, where I was raised. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your experience um, living in Taiwan and if you've experienced um, any kind of racism and how you dealt with it? Hmm. I think for me, um, for me, there is a little subtlety in the difference and there might be different perspectives on this, but for me, I'm not sure if it's racism or if it's discrimination against foreigners, right? Um, I have to be very mindful that I do not understand or speak a lot of Chinese. I know survival uh, phrases of Chinese. Um, so, but I do know when I hear, hey, run, something, a black person, something is happening. So I'm more attentive, even though I don't know what's being said before or after that. Um, so from my perspective, I am not sure if it's racism or if it's pure discrimination against foreigners. Um, however, there have been instances where racism is the problem. Um, for example, I've seen some teacher open job openings, job opening postings for teachers. And they have been explicit in saying no black people. That's, that's not discrimination. That's pure racism, right? Um, that did not personally affect me because I had a job. However, it's still not okay. And it's still something that I can't support. So that's been my experience thus far related to being here in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as it was, as, as it pertains to me uh, when it comes to racism in Taiwan, is that I've been here longer than my cousin, Stephanie. Uh, so, I mean, I've dealt with my fair share of racism. Uh, I like to joke with a lot of the other black foreigners who come out here. I remember what Taiwan was like when it was only five of us out here back in 2011. Uh, where all the black people knew each other by name and you could count us all on one hand. Uh, and we did deal with our fair share of race, racism and discrimination. Um, and what we, the way that, the way that I understand the racism in Taiwan, um, as it, as it has affected me is, is much different than as it is in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, as it, as it is in America. Um, because it's mostly microaggressions, it comes out in that form, as opposed to the um, dangerous or uh, quote-unquote, I want to cause you physical harm type of uh, racism that we might get in, in America. Uh, so, I mean, I'm brown-skinned, but I'm, I'm on the lighter complexion side. So when most of my students would see me, they would say, oh, Obama, Obama, <laughs> or... Or they would call me Steph Curry or Russell Westbrook because Russell Westbrook was popping back at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was the only black people that they knew. Uh, and those are small forms of racism that come in the form of microaggressions. Uh, I have really long hair. So people would try to take photos of me on the slide, on the MRT, or on the train, on the bus. Uh, or they would try to reach out and touch my hair. And again, those are forms of microaggressions, which present themselves as, as minor, minor incidents of racism. 
uh, even on the MRT during rush hour, uh, me and my friend, uh, my, me and my friend and my business partner, Carl, uh, we would joke because uh, we used to live in Dunchway, which was the last stop on the red line or the first stop, depending on where you're going. Uh, we would joke, we would get on the train and we would sit on opposite, uh, sit across from each other and we would see how long it would take for someone to sit next to us. Uh, and Carl being a, of a darker complexion would usually go m more stops. Uh, we would make it all the way out to Yunshan before someone wanted to sit next to us. On the rare occasion, we made it all the way to Taipei Main Station uh, with a small bubble around us of people who just like, no, I'm just going to stand as opposed to sitting next to these black men. Uh, so again, we, we deal with racism uh, very differently than we would in America. Mm. Uh, it, it mostly presents itself in the form of microaggressions, but it's never been anything where it's been vehemently aggressive towards us. Uh, as Stephanie mentioned, we do get, we do see uh, national, national uh, occurrences of blackface uh, or just outwardly racist things that happen. But again, it's not, it's not the same level as back in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Stephanie, do you want to add to that? Yeah, the only thing that I would add is for my personal experience, it has been related to microaggressions as Patrick has shared. You know, people wanting to touch my skin and, and they're so curious about why doesn't it come off or the questions about, well, do you wash your hair? Yeah, yeah I, do, I do. Wow. Who, who doesn't? Um, just subtle things like that. And I think that for me, I have to be fully aware that I am on all the time. And what I mean by that is I have to hold myself at a high regard because I am in a foreign country. And at no point in time, regardless of how I feel, am I allowed to share my frustrations outwardly. Mm. In, in layman's terms, I want to pop off, right? Um, but I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to, you know, say cuss words if I feel and if it if I feel that it's necessary. Even though someone could have easily cussed at me, I'm not allowed to reciprocate that as a foreigner. And I'm I'm not saying that I should be allowed to. I'm just saying that it should I should be able to be treated equally. If someone cusses at me or says something rude to me, I should be allowed to say something rude in return. But due to certain laws, I, it's more than likely that the laws will come harder down on me as a foreigner. Um, and so I just find that to be unequal and unfair, not necessarily discrimination or racism. It's just the cards that were dealt. Um, but the microaggressions do become too much. And when they are too much, the desire to want to pop off is higher um, because people don't understand that the microaggressions are occurring and that they are participating in them. Mm -hmm. And how, how would you say that compares to um, what you've experienced in the U.S.? It's different. Um, for me, uh, racism is more overt and even potentially covert. Um, however, I understand the systems in which I'm working in and I have more resource, resources on a personal level to rely on, right? I have people I can call and say, hey, this is what happened. Please tell me your perspective about how to move forward. 
Whereas here, the microaggressions are similar to like mosquito bites and they just get all over and they begin to really, really bother you and you begin to really, really scratch, but it doesn't seem to be as severe as someone actually pushing you, right? They're minute things, uh, but they still that's, add that's up. A great analogy. That's a great analogy. The mosquito oh, you bite. like my analogy now. I, I like that one. I like that one. Because they are very similar <laughs> to mosquito bites because tiny, tiny, tiny mosquito bites bother you, but you never realize mm. that one day it could it could manifest itself in something bigger like malaria. Mm -hmm. You know? I think that's a great analogy. I'm not going to interrupt, but keep going. Seth, oh, no, no, that's great. Yes. Um, okay, so how have things changed since you've uh, moved to Taiwan? I mean, Patrick, you've been here for almost a decade, you mentioned. So what, have you seen any changes um, in Taiwan in the time that you've been here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Taiwan has made tons of progress, uh, leaps and bounds in terms of accepting the black population as it comes out here. But that doesn't mean it's been, it's been perfect. Uh, I remember, again, when I, I, like I said, I joked before when, when I first got out here, you could count on one hand the number of black people who were out here. Uh, even when I got my first job, one of the main issues that I faced, uh, according to the, the manager that hired me, who was also another, uh, another black man, um, the main question he got was, or from parents and from the administration was, how are we going to explain to parents that we're hiring another black person to teach the students, to teach the kids? Um, and I know that trickled down because uh, Stephanie and I, we used to work at the same, on the same campus in different, in different entities. Uh, I used to work in the middle school. Stephanie still works in the elementary school. Um, but they would ask, how can you justify so many black people working at your school? Because for a good point of time, uh, the school that we worked at had the most black people working uh, at a single school in Taiwan. Uh, we had uh, the highest percentage and it was a 100% black staff at, at one point of time. Uh, and that's black, uh, black, including, uh, African, Indian, American, uh, and other, just other nationalities, but all still, uh, belonging to the black diaspora. Uh, but yeah, people would deal with that. And like I said, over time, Taiwan has become more accepting of people being here, but that doesn't mean that they've been exempt, um, we still notice a a uh, and a a recurrence of these microaggressions, the same microaggressions that we try to teach our students to not uh, engage in. We've noticed uh, more and more people who've become more emboldened, uh, I will say, with some of the things some of the things that they say uh, and how they respond to black people. Uh, but like I said, I mean, that, I don't want to take away from the progress that Taiwan has made. Uh, they've definitely made progress as it pertains to black people uh, and their acceptance overall, but that does not mean they're perfect with what's going on. We still face racism and discrimination uh, and a certain level of prejudice, but it has improved since I've been here. Great. That's good to know. And Stephanie, what's your perspective? It's it's still hard for me to share that. I've only been here since 2016. Okay. Um, so I'll be going into my fifth year of teaching this coming school year. Um, so it's, it's really hard for me to say on the elementary side, I can only speak to like what has been happening. And um, 
through transitions, my boss is now Latina. Um, however, Afro-Latina is how she defines herself. And that's a great representation because she's in a, in a role of management similar to what Carl was back on the high school side. Um, she was an advocate for me getting hired. And she's a significant advocate for getting other Black people hired on her team uh, because we do provide a level of diversity that our students need. Our students need to see people that look like us because they idolize us on the basketball court. 100%. But if you, if you never see us in real life, then you're always going to fantasize about this person who you idolize on TV but never have a true interaction with them. So there will always be this disconnect unless you interact with someone who looks like us. Um, also, I feel as though the way that we go about teaching and the way that we interact and the way that we um, really tap into the emotional aspect of children is so vital to their learning. And some other uh, non-Black people are not interested in doing that. And I'm not saying all, I'm just saying some. And I think the way that we grew up and the culture in which we were raised as African-Americans, and I can only speak for us, um, in a Black household, those, those aspects of growing up are valuable and necessary. And we can also add that value to the children in which we're interacting with and teaching. Great. Um, and Patrick, you mentioned that um, you sometimes need to address these kinds of microaggressions with your students, and I'm sure, Stephanie, you do too. So that's actually a very important thing to do to educate your students and make them aware of this, because um, hopefully that will also um, cause some more progress in people's attitudes towards like people of color in Taiwan. And so how do you address that in the classroom? All right. So uh, number one, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that Stephanie and I, we teach different levels of students. Stephanie teaches in the elementary or mm -hmm. she teaches in the elementary school. Uh, as of now, I, I don't teach anymore. Uh, I own my own business out here in Taiwan. Uh, but before then, I used to teach in the middle school and high school, uh, whereas I used to be a, a middle school homeroom teacher, as well as a high school homeroom teacher, one of the first in our, uh, on our campus, uh, another school that I taught at. I was also head of international studies and a college counselor for these students. So I've had lots of experience dealing with these students. Uh, but one way that I used to address this, because again, if, if a student comes into my classroom or I go into their classroom, as a black man, um, my my racial identity is a huge part of of, of, of my identity. It's how they it's how they identify me. It's how they know me. How they recognize me. How they see me. Um, the way that I used to handle that was really just just extremely bluntly, and to let them know, like, hey, I'm a black man. I'm teaching you. I'm extremely qualified to do this. Uh, and here's what you all need to know about me, uh, about where I come from, and what I do. Um, I didn't, it wasn't something that I, that I felt was necessary to beat over my student's head. Uh, they're like, oh, hey, every day, hey, just so you know, I'm a black man. But no, uh, when issues came up as it pertained to race relations in America um, and as they would therefore affect Taiwan, I made sure to address them uh, so my students knew 
so they knew that teacher was a I'm a I'm a I'm a holistic person, right? I'm a full person. I have feelings, I have emotions. When things happen back at home, they affect me here. And I think it's fair for us to be able to have that space to uh, to talk about things and, and to dissect them. Uh, I was actually talking to my cousin Stephanie earlier mm-hmm. about one lesson that I love to do with my students, just to teach them the difference between race, ethnicity, and nationality using candy. Uh, so what I'll do is, uh, whenever whenever the issue does does come about, uh, I'll get three bags of Skittles. Uh, I'll pass them around to my students. I usually use a red bag, the blue bag, and maybe like the sour skittles, the green bag. And I'll have my students open them all up, pour them all out. Uh, And I explain the bag that they come from is their nationality, right? Uh, And within within that bag, there are different colors, there are different flavors. And then I have them mix all of the different the different bags of Skittles together uh, and then separate them by color. So I need you to put all the green into one pile, all the yellow into another, all the orange, all the red, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I was like your outward appearance, that's your race, right? It doesn't take into account the flavor that you might have within there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what bag you come from. You can come from a green bag, but you can be yellow. You can come from a green bag. You can also be green. You come from the same bag. You can be red or whatever, whatever, you may be. Uh, and then I have the students look at how they have the, the quote-unquote race of the skills, the color, and then I have them divide them up into, into flavors. And for the most part, they can't. They say, oh, I don't know until I experience this, until I taste it. Uh, and then they say, oh, this one is lemon-lime, or this one is just lemon, or this one is sour-lime. And I'm like, that's your ethnicity. That's how it breaks apart. It's different things, right? You can't tell someone's ethnicity based on their race or their nationality. That's why I can be an African-American, my ethnicity, uh, but I can still be black, but I can be from Asia, or I could be from Europe, or I could be from North America or South America. Uh, So that's how I usually tend to approach it. But like I said, I mean, my students, uh, at least the students I work with, they're they're young adults, they're they're grownups or they're well on their way to become grownups. So I approach things very bluntly and very honestly with them. And I don't try to sugarcoat things with them because they need the honest truth because when they go out into the real world, once they leave my class, uh, they're not going to have people who are going to, to sugarcoat things with them. They deserve the truth. And I try to give them that. And I encourage that dialogue in the classroom. Yeah. And for me, um, my students are younger. However, I also agree with being straightforward and not dancing around a bush, right? Um, I teach, I tend to focus more on consent, right? Consent is a, a very important thing as it relates to touching someone else, especially someone's hair or their body, right? Um, because my experience has been just people wanting to come up to me, touch my skin or touch my hair, and it's like, one, do you want me to do that to you, right? Oh, it's okay, teacher, you can touch my hair. Okay, well, I'm happy it's okay for you, but for me, it's not okay. I don't know if you've washed your hands recently or if the last place you touched was in your butt or in your face, you might know by digging in your nose. I don't know where your hands have been. So for you to just walk up to me and touch my hair and my hair is clean, that's not fair to me. 
So you have to ask for consent before you do something, before you touch someone, right? And it's important to instill consent into students because it's valuable for them for the rest of their life and understanding that someone just can't take or touch a part of you just because they want to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I find that surprising. Like that, that's so disconcerting and um, disrespectful. And uh, I mean, uh, also as a woman, I mean, you, that's not, I wouldn't feel safe. I can't believe that um, people f- feel they can take the liberty to do that. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, so, Patrick, you mentioned that you um, used to be teaching and you're no longer teaching. Well, what is it that you're doing now? And can you tell me how um, a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So um, currently I am co-owner uh, of a bar out here. In, I live in Taichung, uh, which is the central part of the island. Uh, for those who might know, uh, I own a bar. I co- well, co-own a bar uh, with my business partner, Carl. Again, the one that I mentioned earlier, uh, who was head teacher when I first moved to Taiwan, uh, we co-owned the first uh, 100% black-owned bar in Taiwan. Uh, It's called Arts and Crafts. So we specialize in local cocktails or cocktails that are based around local ingredients and local spirits, as well as local beers. We thought it was really important to focus on like the local aspect because we are foreigners. So we want to make sure that we're putting money back into, in the, into the community uh, that we live in. Oh, fun. How long have you been doing that? Uh, so we're actually getting ready to celebrate our very first full year, oh. uh, like full, our full opening. Yeah. We, we signed our contract on the building uh, earlier in this month in June. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we celebrated, we will celebrate our, official grand opening at the end of this month in of June. Okay, great. That's exciting. So I imagine, like, do you guys use, like, local fruits and local ingredients and things like that? Yeah, actually, uh, so at the point of recording this podcast is Dragon Boat Festival. Uh, so we're doing all Dragon Boat, uh, I'm sorry, I said Dragon Boat, Dragon Fruit uh, cocktails. So I shop in my local market. I get all of my, all of my Dragon Fruit, uh, the lychee, the Dragon Eyes, the Longan, Longan Fruits. Uh, all of that comes from local distributors. Uh, even the alcohol that we use comes from local business entities uh, in the area because, again, like I said, it, it was very important for us. Even though we're foreigners, we live in this community, so we want to make sure that we're recirculating the money back into the areas that we serve. Yeah, it must be really fun. There's the dragon fruit, the color is like the, the bright fuchsia color, and it must be really fun to have that ingredient. Oh, no, I, lo- I love it. It's so, much, it's so much fun trying to like not only mixing drinks with the flavors, but also just like coming up with new things for the colors. Uh, no, I, I, I love doing it. Yeah, if you guys have a website, you're going to have to share that with me, and I'll put it in the show notes um, for this episode. So if anybody's oh, curious, they can check your bar and visit because i'm sure i have listeners some of them might be visiting taiwan or living in taiwan great so um let's talk a little bit about like um black Lives solidarity global initiative can you tell me when and why that was established um when i would say what maybe three weeks ago um (laughs) wow that's, yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was like two and a half. Uh, no, I would say three. 
Um, why? Because the incident with George Floyd, his murder, mm-hmm. um, triggered something in me. And there is a community of African-Americans, Africans, uh, people from the Caribbean. And we have a Facebook group called Brothers and Sisters of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And within that group, I decided to make a post asking, hey, if I made T-shirts and I sold them and sent all the proceeds back to Black Lives Matter, would you guys support purchasing these shirts? And as the day went on, people were responding. One friend, KG, he, he said, hey, I wanted to talk to you about a process um, because I, I want to do that. And I messaged him, connected with him. Other people started chiming in. And we just kind of connected collectively as five people, including um, Patrick. And as time went on, it merged from uh, selling T-shirts to turning into a rally. Mm. And as we decided to move forward with the rally, we also uh, were able to identify that we needed donors. We needed people to be willing to support this mission and support us having a rally, a peaceful rally. Um, And it was easier for us to come together as one group than it was to say person number one, person number two through five all want to have this event. It was just easier to say Black Lives Solidarity Global Initiative wants to have this event versus all these names. Yeah, I mean, were there some kind of permits or things that you need to get to have the rally? Yes, there were permits that were required. um, And thankfully, a local NGO was more than happy to help us with those permits. Um, And we were, were really grateful that they were able to do that for us. Um, and that's where we were able to remain legal and be able to do everything according to uh, the laws that Taiwan has established. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the actual event? Like, do you, do you have any estimates about how many people were there and what kind of activities are planned that day? Uh, so we, we've seen reports that have been ranging from about 700 uh, between 500 and 700 people uh-huh. showed up that day. Um, and to be completely honest, uh, as Stephanie said, we just thought it was going to be something where we were selling a few shirts and then it blew up into a rally. And we expected maybe 100 or so people to come up uh, and more and more people and um, more and more people just just started to show up. Uh-huh. So I think that day, I think, I think we can confidently say about 600 people uh, showed up. Uh, but we had speakers who represented, obviously, the African-American perspective uh, about what was happening in America. They spoke on what was going on. There was spoken word and poetry, uh, and there was a rap performance, and people who came up and gave testimonies and speakers just come and talk about what was happening and recite statistics uh, about, you know, um, about crime rates and other things like that, that a lot of people have misconstrued about going on in, uh, in America uh, as it pertains to the Black Lives Matter movement and about the entire the entire rally. Uh, but we also made sure that we gave space for the Taiwanese indigenous peoples uh, because we realized that 
though we are dealing with issues here in Taiwan, we would be doing a disservice to the people who are native to Taiwan to not also allow them a platform to um, express their grievances, to uh, have a platform to say, this is an issue that, or here are some issues that also are affecting other people who are from Taiwan. Because as Stephanie said, uh, we weren't, what we did wasn't a protest. Uh, it was a rally to show solidarity with other people. And we do understand our privilege as foreigners to allow us a more, I'm sorry, to allow us a more, more easy access to this kind of platform to sit there and say, oh, we want to rent this space and we want to host a rally where we are able to express our grievances in solidarity. Uh, whereas some Taiwanese groups or local Taiwanese groups might not necessarily have that same kind of platform. Um, so we also wanted to make sure that we allowed space for certain individuals uh, whose plight was similar to ours, who experienced issues of colorism or discrimination to also voice, voice their concerns. Oh, that's wonderful that you guys were able to include the indigenous peoples. Uh, our main thing for doing it, we weren't, uh, we weren't doing it necessarily for clout. Right? We weren't doing it for the recognition uh, I think and I, I feel comfortable saying uh, Stephanie agrees with me and the other members also agree. Uh, we would have been fine if our name was not attached to this because we were doing this for, uh, I'm sorry, to, to show solidarity with these other, with these other uh, movements. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily about us. It was a much bigger thing. Uh, so we didn't necessarily, we didn't, we personally didn't focus on, making sure there was a recording or making sure there were photos. There have been other people who have graciously uh, shared links to photos and videos and who have um, signed on as uh, videographers and things to do stuff for us. But no, we didn't, we didn't personally go out of our way to make sure that there was someone be like, hey, I need you to record everything from this. Because like I said, uh, this event was, is way bigger than us. And it wasn't something that we were all doing for, to gain fame or celebrity from it. Uh, do you know if there's ever been an event like this planned or held in Taiwan before? As to our immediate knowledge, uh, no. This is the first event of its kind to happen in Taiwan. Uh, again, I've been here since 2011, and I haven't heard of anything. Uh, and I like to consider myself to be pretty affluent in, in most of these circles uh, where some sort of event would be planned Uh and I do consider myself to be pretty involved in the African American community, the black, the black diaspora, mm -hmm. black diasporic mm -hmm. community uh, out here in Taiwan. I know Stephanie uh, has has excelled leaps and bounds <laughs> over me as it comes to things. Uh, just that's her nature. Uh, but as far as I know, and I think as far as Stephanie's comfortable saying, uh, this was the first event of its sort. I think the closest that it came was the uh, Taipei is listening open forum that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, shortly beforehand, where they received quite a number of people to just go out and to discuss uh, different methods of being an advocate or an activist uh, or an ally as it pertains to Black Lives Matter in Taiwan. But somehow in conjunction with what you guys are doing with the rally? Uh, no, that wasn't uh, no. in conjunction with us. No, a lot of these, uh, to be completely honest, a lot of these, these Black Lives Matter movement or in support of mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter movements, I should say, uh, started shortly after the murder of George Floyd was publicly released. Uh, once his video popped up, uh, it became something that more and more people were concerned about uh, and more and more black 
black individuals in Taiwan noticed that people were, in, were concerned about it and they wanted to get involved. Uh, so you saw a resurgence of pretty much three, three main groups that popped up around Taiwan. Uh, one of them being ours, another one being BLM Taiwan, and another one being the uh, the uh, Taipei is listening. Taipei is listening. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, another one being Taipei is listening. So yeah, no, we're not we're not necessarily uh, all working together as of now, uh, but yeah, these were all separate events that happened around the same time. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And yes. And. Felicia, I think to go back to your question, um, as far as we know it, it was an historical event. Um, it, it made history as it relates to adding to the fact that now Taiwan is included in one of those countries that decided to have a rally or a moment of solidarity with um, the injustices that are happening back in the state. Um, and the global so, narrative. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it is definitely very historic as it relates to it occurring in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. What kind of feedback or reactions did you receive about the rally? We've been getting uh, heard, No, was it going to say? You got it. I, I was just going to say I heard nothing but really, really great feedback. Um, I had a, I had late lunch, early dinner with one of the attendees of the rally today. And she was just really expressing how um, how impactful it was on her um, mm -hmm. and how she walked away learning, one, learning so much new, so much new, horrible English, um, so, so much more information that she wasn't aware of prior to. Um, she came in without any expectations, which is what we hoped for, but walked away um, feeling the emotion that we wanted people to walk away with. We wanted people to feel something different because our lives are, in a way, lived on edge every day. And we wanted people to not feel bad, but we wanted people to at least be able to have some level of empathy at the end of that event so that they could at least reflect internally and say, dang, what can I do to help change what my normal is? Because obviously I'm seeing things that are going wrong, but what is my role in this process? Can I stop having my friends say the N-word when I know that they say it? Can I tell my family members to stop talking about stereotypes of, bad pe of Black people and correct them about that's that's a myth. That's not a fact. I was saying. Well, I was just interjecting and saying, can you explain that black on black crime is not a real thing? Uh, a lot of people like to cite those statistics of black on black crime, but when you really look at it, uh, you see that you're cherry picking certain statistics to support a narrative that is, to be quite quite frank, is very racist. Because uh, you you don't hear people saying uh, Hispanic on Hispanic crime, Asian on Asian crime. Uh, when you look at again, if you if you were to sit around and to cherry pick those numbers, obviously you would see oh look at this the people who live in the same community as you are more than likely to commit the same kind of, or to commit more crimes 
against other people who live in the same community. Uh, and they don't take into consideration the effects, the cause and effects that went to that, right? They don't look at redlining. They don't look at uh, gerrymandering. They don't look at, you know, certain certain aspects. But no, that was just a quick interjection onto what Stephanie was saying. I didn't mean to interrupt. I think that it was important for us to be able to have people walking away with that emotion and being able to reflect internally about how they can change. And as Patrick was saying, um, talking about, you know, breaking those stereotypes and busting those myths, you know, about the black on black crime, um, about, you know, all black people are great dancers and awesome athletes and can sing wonderfully. Like these are myths. Not everyone is good at these things. Um, and so it's, it's just important for people to be able to walk away and tangibly think about things they can do to make a change. Because not everyone can protest, not everyone can talk to a black friend, which they may not have, but they can begin to have these conversations with themselves first. And secondly, with their level of influence, circle of influence they have around them to slowly bring about change. So it sounds like um, you did some things during this rally to kind of break down people's stereotypes. That was our goal. So we, we do hope that we did that. So yeah, hopefully we did. Yeah, I would say, uh, I know specifically that we, we, we dedicated a good portion of time just to, to go over uh, crime statistics and how stop and frisk um, um, un, uh, what is it, uh, inequivocally affected. Three times more likely black, for. Yeah, it inequivocally affected black and brown communities. Uh, as it did with uh, the white communities, right? If you go looking, if you go looking for problems in a certain area, you're obviously going to find those, even though, you know, the statistics for using uh, certain drugs or for committing certain crimes might be the same in an area. You know, if I if I go look in the ocean for fish, obviously I'm going to find more fish than I will if I go check in the stream, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously I'm going to find I'm going to find fish but I'm going to find a lot more because my pool is bigger than I'm pulling from. Uh, so we, we recited some of those numbers. Uh, we talked about how adultification uh, with young children, how young black children uh, are treated to more harsher punishments than their white counterparts, um, and how young black men are hyper, uh, hypersexualized and hyperviolent. Uh, or they're, they're seen as more aggressive, but specifically also as how black women are seen as hypersexualized and they're often, often blamed as a, they're often blamed for their own sexual assaults and how they don't get nearly as much attention, right? There's a reason that we know Trayvon Martin, we know, um, we know George Floyd, we know uh, all these other people, but we don't know uh, Atanya, what's her name? Uh, Stephanie. Asiana Jefferson. Asiana Jefferson. We don't know. Um, all Breonna these other Taylor. Breonna Taylor. All these other women who've been been brutalized and been harassed by. Again, I was struggling to say that, and we we talked about them. Yeah. So, could you explain for my listeners who those women are? I think people may have heard of Breonna Taylor, but um, who is the other woman? What's yeah, so Tiana Jefferson. Yeah, Tiana Jefferson. Uh, she was in her home. Uh, it was at nighttime. 
Um, one of the neighbors, uh, again, uh, very unfortunate, it was, a, it was another black man. He called to do a wellness check on her residence uh, because her front door was open. Uh, it was about, I think, I want to say, I, I could be incorrect, uh, incorrect with the exact details of this, but I know it was the middle of the night, uh, so about 2 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Uh, yep. And her front door was open, so a police officer came to the came to the residence, uh, went to the front, said, hey, is anyone in here? Proceeded to go around the back of the home, uh, did not announce himself once he got to the back, uh, saw that there was action or motion going on in the back room, which is the bedroom that she just so happened to be in with her nephew, uh, again, a young black male, uh, and proceeded to open fire into the bedroom uh, pretty much within, what, I think like 12 seconds of announcing himself uh, to being there and shot and killed her. Uh, as she was playing, playing video games, playing video games yeah. with her that she was babysitting at this home. Uh, her crime was making the mistake of leaving the door open. Mm. Uh, you have other interests, Sandra Bland, who was pulled over for, what, a turn signal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, pulled over for a turn signal, signal uh, was arrested, jailed, and died in police custody. Uh, and they said that all it was a. They said it hurt. Her issue was a suicide, right? Though you can tell from the the photo, the the arrest photo that they had, that it was is very clearly not. Uh, so again, you have you have all these issues. You have transgendered women who've been murdered. Mm-hmm. Again, for for similar for similar occurrences. Right. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. it's important. To- in addition to in addition to the statistics that we discussed we also shared these stories that Patrick is mentioning and I think for us it was important to share these stories um, because some of the people in Taiwan may have not heard this and I think that the stories seem so unbelievable and so simple just as uh, Patrick was saying Atiana Jefferson she is playing video games with her nephew Mm -hmm. and she gets killed in her own home. You know, Brianna Taylor. She was asleep. The police come to the wrong house and she gets killed sleeping due to the police making a mistake. Right? And I think that when the audience heard some of these unbelievable stories, it just resonated with them in a different way. And I don't think that, you know, all Taiwanese news, and I'm not saying anything bad about that. I don't think that they get the opportunity to truly hear these stories to, for it to re- resonate in the way that it should. And at the rally, we were able to bring attention to a lot of these stories to make these people real. Because I think that as humans, if you see another person as a fellow human, you have to be able to empathize with the pain that is associated with their death and with their murder. And I think that's really where the emotional came in for the people in the audience. They were really able to connect and hear these stories and be able to say, dang, what if it was me sleeping in my bed? I did nothing, you know? 
Right. I mean, it's so powerful just telling the personal stories. It's things that people can really relate to and makes it a lot more concrete and um, something that people can relate to. So it's really important and good that you share these stories. Um, are you guys planning any future events or meetings or gatherings? We are in the process of one finalizing everything with the rally. Um, I think that's our main focus at this point is where are the donations going? How much can we announce that we've been able to collect? Um, how do we distribute them in the way that we promised that we would? Um, so those finite details still need to be worked out. Um, and we're looking to do that sooner than later um, yeah, because we don't want anyone to assume that or, or make the assumption that we're not being honest because we truly are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we, after that conversation, after finalizing those things, we can begin to look forward to what's next. Right. What was the money? What were you raising money for? We were raising money and donations to send to organizations across the world that are fighting against injustices, um, against black and brown bodies. So we actually have three organizations in America, two organizations in Africa, and at least one in Taiwan. Um, and that's for the indigenous tribes. Um, and then in Africa, two organizations, as I said, and then America. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Patrick, did you want to add something? Oh, no. I was just going to say, um, as we mentioned, our our goal is, uh, well, as Stephanie said, uh, our goal is not just to focus on America, even though we both are from America. Uh, so, obviously, that hits very close to home for us. Uh, we did realize that a lot of people who were coming to support the event were not just American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, this is not just an issue that affects black and brown bodies in America, right? It's a global thing, right? Hence, hence our name. It's a global initiative. Um, so we want to make sure that the charities that we donated to were representative of all of the black and brown bodies uh, and black and brown organizations and people who were trying to do things to support people around the world, not, not only in America. That's wonderful. That's good to know. Um, and w- I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about um, like your experience of Black Lives Matter? Because, you know, the origins of this hashtag, I mean, both of you were in the United States when this whole movement, the whole hashtag started, right? I know I was. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was I was in Taiwan when it happened. So right. if you don't mind, I, I'll go first and then sure. Yeah, I, I, I like I like I like hearing your story. Um, uh, so like I said, I've been I've been in Taiwan since 2011. Uh, when the entire the origin, I, I like to trace the origins of Black Lives Matter back to uh, Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, after the killing of Mike Brown. Uh, so also it's important to know again, I'm from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm from North County when Mike Brown was killed less than 10 minutes from my home, six miles. Wow. Uh, so it hit me really, really hard. My sister uh, went to school down the street from where everything happened. My brother was there, you know, when everything happened. Stephanie was in the city uh, when everything happened. My family, that's, that's where we are. Wow. Uh, the, the quick trip that the media loved to portray as being burnt down, that was the one that I went to. 
that was my 7-Eleven. Hmm. I'm sorry, my quick trip that I would go to. Uh, so I'm very familiar with the area. I'm very familiar with the people who were there, uh, the people who organized the protest. I know them. Uh, the people who were, sorry, the protesters who were killed by the police because of their involvement in the protest. I know them personally. Uh, so this thing, it, it hit me very, very personally. Uh, and being so far away, uh, it made me feel, I felt a certain kind of way. I felt very inadequate. I felt very um, unable to, to do anything. You know, um, I felt I felt hopeless for quite some time. Hmm. Um, like I would I would call my friends and I would hear helicopters or hear police sirens. Uh, and they would say, I have to call you back. I'm at, I'm downtown right now. Or I mean, I'm on Ferguson or I'm on this street. Or I'm on that street. Uh, and I would hear tear gas canisters going off. I would hear shots going off in the background. So it affected me very, very deeply. Uh, and not being able to participate uh, with my, my peers, my, my friends who were fighting essentially for my own rights. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a black man. I'm a young black man. Yeah. Uh, if ever I move from Taiwan and go back to America, the what they're what they're doing at these protests are going to directly affect me. Right. The changes that they make, whether good or bad, are going to directly have an influence over me. Uh, and obviously, Stephanie, I don't want to I don't want to diminish diminish your role in that, but they will have a, a a direct impact on me, right? As a black male, right? How I'm viewed when I go back. Uh, the freedoms that I'm either allowed or restricted upon once I get back. Uh, so being out here, I felt like I couldn't do much. And it was very disheartening and it didn't make me feel good at all. Uh, so now when we finally had a chance to do something, because when Ferguson happened, you also had the, the umbrella revolution going on in, in Hong Kong. You right. had the student protests happening here in Taiwan. That's you had uh, people in Ukraine fighting against Russia. You had the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was at its at its at its at its peak, mm. um, at least when it came to like to young students. Um, so there were a lot of other protests going on. So it didn't get Black Lives Matter didn't get necessarily the attention that it has right now. But now that it has that attention, uh, I was very grateful to have the opportunity to to finally be able to do something in Taiwan. Uh, as opposed to just having to go back to America to do something. Great, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and as Patrick said back in 2014, um, I was in St. Louis. And so while I'm in St. Louis, of course, I know about what's going on. My ears are in tune to the street. Um, and I went out to protest. Um, I wasn't organizing or anything of that nature, but I did go out to participate and show my respect, one, two, to express and voice, have my voice be heard because it wasn't right. What was the atmosphere like? Um, I mean, it was us coming together to use our voices to say that this was not okay at any point in time, regardless of what he was reportedly doing or reportedly did at no point was the justice of him dying worth it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't worth it at all. So he mm -hmm. should still be alive to this day. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so during that time, I went out and I took photos um, because I felt that it was important for me to capture and document that moment. I wanted to be a part of history and I wanted mm -hmm. to um, participate because I knew what was right. And I knew that I couldn't be silent. I, I, there was no way I could be silent. And, you know, my friends and family, they completely understood. And they just said, you know, be careful. And I made sure to remain careful because I didn't want to have to deal with being arrested. But I also understood the risks that I was taking. And if I was arrested, you know, I let people know where I was and, you know, ensure that I kept my battery, my phone charged so that if something did happen, I could contact someone. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, what advice would um, either of you have for um, non-Black people who want to understand more about the Black experience or struggle or who want to be allies? What, what would you say to them? Wow. Um, one, I would say educate what? yourself. Um, you know, do some self-reflection. Do some self-reflection and educate yourself. There is, you cannot give the onus or the responsibility. You cannot put that on me as a black African-American woman about what should you do? Because I don't know. I don't know what you've been doing wrong. Only you know that. And only you will be able to confess to yourself how you were wrong and what you've been doing wrong or what you've allowed other people to do in your presence by allowing your friends to say the N-word or you singing the N-word with the song, right? I don't know what those things are for you. So you have to, one, ask yourself, what have you done wrong? And then two, you have to be honest enough to educate yourself. We all know about Google. And you can literally type an entire question into the tab bar on Google. Point zero zero one point three seconds later, you have an answer. Ask G's walk so Google could fly. <laughs> no excuse um, for not um, educating yourself or getting answers to questions these days, right? There's no excuse. And... Um, no. I think these are the steps that people have to take in order to begin this process. And then thirdly, I would say, question your belief system. Question, well, why do people say black on black crime? What does that mean? Why, why does no one say white on white crime? Why does no one say Asian on Asian crime? Why does no one say Mexican on Mexican crime? There's valid reasons on why no one says these things because one, they're stupid. You know, Patrick has already mentioned it, but it's stupid, right? Um, it doesn't put it doesn't push the same agenda as as everything else. Actually, true. And so I think that you have to also now question the thoughts that you have, and be willing to step aside so that other people can at least walk on side of you. You know, we talk a lot. Of, I know people, potentially people hearing or listening will hear a lot about white privilege and, and why privilege is the problem and blah, blah, blah. And I think that, you know, some people are very 
get very defensive when they hear oh, my privilege. I have to give it up. No, I I worked hard all my life, and and by no point in time are we saying that you didn't work hard. What we're saying is there are systematic, uh, there are systems in place that do not help people that look like me or Patrick at all. And for 400 years, our family members have been at a disadvantage. And during those 400 plus years, other family members have been at an advantage. That's where your privilege kicks in. 400 something right. years ago. So how do you use this privilege to help someone else who doesn't look like you? That's what I would say. Great. Thanks for sharing. Patrick, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mirror everything Stephanie says. Uh, but the only thing that I have actually to add to that is that uh, if you do have black friends, uh, like, again, Stephanie mentioned, don't put the onus on them to solve these problems. Uh, I know that a lot, of my, a lot of my white friends have asked me, what can I do? How can I help? Uh, and Again, I'm, I'm so used to teaching kids that I have to always go back to analogies because it's one thing that they understand. But like, if you're in math class, your teacher gives you a math problem, they don't give you the answer and then say work backwards, right? They give you the problem and then it's your job to solve it. Um, your black friends are tired. We don't, we don't want to sit here and tell you the, the, the problem and also give you the answer. Do the work try your best to solve some things um, present me with a present me with a, a possible a possible solution and then we can, we can workshop it from there but don't don't make me start from scratch right uh, accept accept and acknowledge your privilege it might not be something that you that you uh, want or that you have walked into your but it's something that you have regardless right again I I understand that as a man, I have male privilege that allows me to get away with certain things that my cousin Stephanie, that you, that other people might not be able to get away with. Even though I'm a black man, I am still, because I am a man, I am able to get away with a whole lot more than some other people. The way that I talk to people, the way that I dress people, uh, the persona that I carry, right? Acknowledge your privilege, check it, and then work towards creating an even an even playing field for other people. Uh, if you are in a position of privilege, it is okay, or understand and accept it, it is okay to advocate for other people and to just shut up sometimes, right? If someone else, if someone else who looks different than me or who is different than me wants to say something, it's okay for me to say, hey, let's hear what they have to say and encourage other people not to interrupt. That is the simplest thing you can do, is to use your privilege to tell other people with your same privilege to shut up. Just real quick, you're like, hey, why don't you stop talking and let's hear what they have to say. The simplest thing that you can do. 
Right, right. We should all uh, give everybody space uh, to listen and hear each other out. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like to end with Stephanie reading some of the facts and statistics based on U.S. data and research that were shared at the Black Lives Solidarity Global Initiative Rally. More than one half of young Black Americans know someone, including themselves, who has been harassed by the police. Black students are three times more likely to be suspended than white students for similar infractions. Black drivers are 30% more likely than white drivers to be pulled over by the police. For every $100 earned by white families, black families earn $57.30. Black Americans make up 13% of the nation's population. However, Black Americans also make up 40% of prison populations. Thank you for sharing that. The only thing that I have left to say, uh, as, as we mentioned before, being in Taiwan, we do not experience the same level of racism that uh, overt, in your face, I want to cause you harm type of racism that our other black brothers and sisters might feel in America. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't experience some kind. Uh, Taiwan is, a, is an amazing place to live, but it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of things to teach people. Uh, and there's a lot that we can all do to become better. Right. Uh, so like I said, the last thing I have to say is just, we all have a responsibility to do better in order to become better. And as Stephanie mentioned, that comes with empathy, that comes with understanding, that comes with educating ourselves and being willing to do the work that's required and not just asking someone else to do it for us. Um, being an advocate is more than, just, more than just retweeting a hashtag or making your Instagram black for a day or sharing some other things. Um, my life, is not a trend. When I say Black Lives Matter, I don't mean that I'm not doing it for clout. I'm not doing it to be trendy. I'm saying that because I want you to understand that my black life as me, me Patrick, it matters. Mm -hmm. My yeah. black life as it pertains to uh, being a brother to my, to my sister, who is also black, matters. My black life as it matters to being an uncle to my nephew matters, as it pertains to being cousin to my, my cousin Stephanie matters, to being someone who loves other black people, be, be they straight, gay, uh, transgendered, non-binary, pansexual, asexual, queer, old, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? When I say black lives matter, I mean all black lives matter, right? It, it, it applies to every single black life. And when I say that, that does not mean that other lives don't matter, but I want you to understand that my life matters. Other people who look like me matter. And that's, that's all you need to know. Yeah, that's very well put. And I think for me, in addition to everything that Patrick said, I 100% agree with all black lives matter. Right. For me, there's no separation, regardless of what, how we identify our gender, how we identify our sexuality. 
at the end of the day, you're black, right? And so you matter. And we all have to remember that um, for all lives to matter, black lives must matter. That, that's, that's my argument related to all lives matter. If my life doesn't matter, then obviously all lives don't matter. Problem solved. Right. Um, right. But as it relates to living here in Taiwan, my hope is that we really are able to get the opportunity to share our message in a, in a way that is well-received. Again, we're not saying anything against Taiwan. Um, we're just standing in solidarity to fight the injustices that are happening against black and brown bodies. And I think what we're able to offer as we live here is the experience and the opportunity for Taiwanese people to actually meet real black people in real life, in real time. And it's a, it's a great opportunity because this gets rid of, well, I only know black people by way of movies. Well, let's think about the movies you've watched. They're directed by who? Probably a white person. And, and so that white person has decided that the black people in these roles will go around saying, yo, yo, yo. I, I don't talk like that at all. So get to know me and Patrick and the other black people that are here as black people and nothing else, or just as humans really, and nothing else. And put all those stereotypes aside because it's not real. And you would hate for us to have a stereotype against, you know, someone who looks like you, which isn't real either. So I just really hope that we're able to be well received by the Taiwanese people and we can create some level of understanding and collaboration to really identify how we're more alike than how we are different. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, how can people learn more about Black Lives Solidarity Global Initiative? Sure. They can go follow us on Facebook um, at BLSG, BLS. G-L-O-B-A-L. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I want to um, thank you so much for sharing your time and for um, all the great work that you did and for putting on the rally to create some more awareness. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, we appreciate it. Great. I've been speaking with the founders of the Black Lives Solidarity Global Initiative, Stephanie Davis and Patrick Springer. Be sure to check out their Facebook page, www.facebook.com, BLS Global. We will include the Black Lives Solidarity Global Initiative's Facebook page and some of the other resources and links mentioned in this episode on our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.